Amen. Well, we're going to take a short little break from Genesis. We'll begin Genesis again next week. We'll be in Genesis 3 for two weeks and then keep plowing through. But every now and then we're stopping to do a, a part of an ongoing series just called Restoring. And we had at the beginning of the year, I believe, Restoring Hospitality. And this is uh, called Restoring Treasure. And I think it's an appropriate um, sermon and and and, and word for us, uh, especially this month and this season. So uh, I'm going to read out of Luke chapter 12 and uh, just a few verses, and then we will uh, spend our time uh, in, in God's Word. Luke 12, verses 29 to 34. says this, And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. And give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is God's Word. And as I said, I think it's an appropriate word for uh, this season. Though it's called the season of giving, let's be honest, it's probably better described as the season of spending. We spend a lot, and I could give you all kinds of numbers, but I won't because you probably have your own. And in the most, I think, tragic irony of all, there will be many more people who spend more money this month than they gave all year in the name of the Savior that it celebrates. Tragic irony. In our three years as a church, um, and obviously we are, we're part of Damascus Road and they planted us, but we'll be three years in January which explains why we still stumble over ourselves a little bit. We're only three. We've had, I think, maybe one sermon that had to do with money. And this is not a sermon about money. Okay, good. Though I would say, if sermons on money make you uncomfortable, you should all ask yourselves why. Because they do make us uncomfortable, and there's reasons for that, but I won't go into that. The sermon is not titled Tithe. It's not titled Legacy, because it's not a sermon designed to make up a budget deficit or launch a new building campaign. It's a simple word, I think, that is important for me personally, and I believe will be important for all of us, to help disciples of Jesus consider how and what and why you give in response to a great, generous, gracious God who gave. Now, Jesus talked about giving more than just around his birthday. Uh, if you actually survey the Gospels, numbers range from about 15 up to 50% of all that Jesus spoke of concerned money or possessions or giving. And most of those are warnings about it. Not warning, you better give, but, but be careful of this. People uh, disagree whether this amounts to 800 or over 2,000 verses just in the New Testament. And depending on whose calculation you accept, you can basically um, consider that 
a third of Jesus' teaching or one verse on money and possessions for every seven verses in the first three Gospels. It's a lot. Without question, our our Lord knew that there is going to be a fundamental connection between one's spiritual life and one's attitude toward money and possessions and treasure. And it, let's be honest, it's pretty clearly one of the biggest idols we have in our world, evidenced by a very simple fact. Not how much we spend, though I think we could probably make an argument for that. More evidenced by this, how easily we... I say easily, welcome others to inquire and to admonish even us about spiritual things, but don't you dare talk about earthly things like money. Don't ask me about that, but inquire about that. I mean, have you ever asked anybody like, hey, so do you think I'm greedy? We don't, right? We dare not open our checkbooks. We dare not tell people how much we spend, give, whatever. It's just like, it's one of those private, like, don't ask me about that. It's weird. And seeing as Jesus was crucified for what he taught, it shouldn't be a surprise that anyone, pastors or disciples, with the courage to actually ask or speak up, will be despised for repeating what Jesus said. Makes us uncomfortable. Oh, money. Pastors talk about money. By the time we're done, I hope that we will um, hold some deeper biblical convictions about a couple things. Number one, that all of our stuff is God's. We say that, but I, I really mean that. That all of our life is spiritual, not just what we're doing on Sunday mornings for 45 minutes to an hour or more. And that all of our behavior, even our spending or giving or lack thereof ought to be governed by one powerful thing, gratitude. And that gratitude is rooted in one specific thing, and that is the gospel. See, good giving doesn't begin with good people. Newsflash, there are none. There are no good people. Good giving begins with good theology. And good theology reveals a very good and gracious and generous God who gives radically. And this God gave in very specific ways to bless us, but also to motivate us and guide us in our giving. When we say good giving begins with good theology, what we're talking about theology is is who God is. See, when we gather here to worship, that's what we ought to spend our time on. I could give you like the five ways to improve X, Y, Z, or the seven ways to have a better life. Like, but we would be spending our time talking about ourselves. And what we need to do as we gather as God's people is worship Him for who He is, and be satisfied when we leave going, oh. That's who God is. Whoa, and watch it change how we behave. In the beginning, as we've been spending several weeks in Genesis, God has revealed Himself as the first and possibly only giver. 
He was the first giver. He created everything out of nothing. We spent time talking about that. In other words, He created everything there is to give. And anything we give is His. Created by Him and ultimately for Him. And this world was created in the beginning full of great, good, by His own words, gifts. And He created all of it to display His greatness and His goodness. And He gave it to our first parents, Adam and Eve, to manage and steward, but also to enjoy. The Bible says in James 1 that every good gift comes from God the Father. And God gave us very beautiful things, but more than mountains and plants and animals. But though you look out, especially in the Northwest, you just kind of go, whoa. It is beautiful. It is amazing. We're privileged to, to live here and see these things. God gave us more than life. He actually gave us minds. He gave us strength. He gave us wisdom that we can use to actually, having been made in His image, create other things. See, we, and I say we because I include myself, many of us actually wrongly believe that what we have, our success, our stuff, even the smallest amount of stuff or the smallest successes, we actually believe that it's ours, that we were responsible for it, that I accomplished this, I created this, I brought this in by my own efforts, my own gifts, my own talents, my own hard work. And so if we just spend a little bit of time going, okay, did your success from did your success come from your education, from your brain? We go, who gave you that brain? Who gave you that capacity to learn, that, that way of thinking that maybe you only think like? Who gave you that desire to even understand? Maybe it came from your strength or skill, like I'm just really you know, strong and, and, and I'm skilled in certain ways. Like, well, who gave you your muscles? And who gave you your fingers? And who gave you your toes? Who gave you your legs and all those things? Who gave you the capacity to, to lift, walk? Maybe it came from your creativity, your artistry. Well, who gave you the eye for art? Who gave you the mind to imagine? Who gave you the ability to dance or play instruments? Did it, did it come from heredity? Well, I was passed down from my family. We've always been like this. Did you realize God gave you the family you have? God gave you the personality you're born with? God gave you the experiences that He wanted you to experience? See, just that truth right there, that God is the first giver and that everything is from Him should stir in us deep gratitude. And many of us go, well, I've had a lot of bad things, but let's be honest, there's a lot of us who've experienced a lot of bad things that we now view as good. We go, man, if I wouldn't have gone through that. Every good gift is from God. Now, God intended in the very beginning, having been made in His image, for us to give like Him. And to depend on the Father as the giver of gifts and giver of everything. And His design for the world was not for His people to you know, hoard their stuff or 
even depend and find identity in the stuff you'd given to men. But something happened. Something happened that basically made the stuff more important than God. That's what the Bible says. When the Bible says that, that we exchange the glory of the Creator for His creation, you know, really in the simplest terms, we loved God's stuff more than we loved God. That sounds like 2015 America. We love our stuff. We all love our stuff. We have different stuff. You might like different stuff than me. Maybe my stuff's weird. Maybe your stuff's weird. But we all love stuff. We all think about our stuff more than we think about God, the giver of stuff. It's true. And it's just evidence of our brokenness. It's evidence of our disorder, our internal disorder that we all are guilty of in all experience. See, our first parents declared their independence from God by choosing to believe a false promise of sin, which men and women continue to believe. That you'll be happier and stronger and better if you have this. What's this? It's that thing you don't have. It's that thing you want. It's that thing that you believe is going to save you from the hell you're in right now. It's called a functional savior. You imagine a hell in its absence of that thing. That thing, if it's not named Jesus, is an idol. See, the fall of man began with lies about God and false promises about the stuff God had made. Look at this thing you don't have. Take it. It will make you happier, is what they were told. And it should sound familiar to all of us because this is the lie that we are still believing. And it's not just most prevalent at the season of spending. The serpent who is called the father of lies, convinced our first parents that what they had, which, let's remember something, was everything minus one tree. Right? God gave them the world. It's one tree. We'll deal with that next week deeply. But they had everything. It was not a provision issue. And it was not enough. It's not enough. They needed more. They were deceived to believe. Romans 1 tells us the problem, and we skip over this very key word in Romans chapter 1, verse 21. It says that basically we have a gratitude problem. That's our biggest problem. I should say it characterizes the brokenness of our heart best. It says, for although they knew God, in verse 21, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Did you hear that? They did not honor God or honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. We don't spend much time on that concept, giving thanks to Him. Paul is describing the, the brokenness and it gets very colorful and very dark and very perverse and very depraved. And in the midst of it, he says, they didn't give thanks to him. It was the beginning of the problem. See, most men refuse to give thanks to God because they don't recognize God as the owner of all things. 
That's everything. Your life, your family, your home, your money, your breath, your brain, your job, everything. We don't view it as, this is God's and I need to use it for Him. We view it as ours. So they refuse. We refuse to serve or honor God with the stuff we have been given. Instead, we worship those things and honor ourselves. It could be said that gratitude, I think, is the root of most problems, or a lack of gratitude. Think about that. The reason we don't love, we don't understand how much we've been loved. We're not grateful for that. We don't show patience. Why? Because we're not grateful for the depth and breadth of patience that God has shown to us. We don't forgive. Why? Because we're not truly grateful for the depth of forgiveness that God has bestowed to us. I mean, take your pick. Doesn't it all go back to gratitude? Recognizing that God has done something for you and therefore you ought to do the same. I think our generosity in what we do with our stuff, whether it be our time, talents God's given us or our treasure, it's related to our gratitude and our gratitude is directly related to the gospel. You'll never be a grateful person without understanding the good news of Jesus Christ. It's impossible. I don't mean you won't write thank you cards to people. I'm talking about deep-rooted gratitude that affects everything you have and everything you do. This is why I believe we can say that right giving begins with right theology. See, the, as image bearers of God, we were commanded and empowered to give like God, but unlike God, here's just why we give typically. We give out of fear. We give out of guilt. We give out of duty. We give in order to get. And we typically do this ensuring that our giving really doesn't cost us. That's not how God gave. The Gospel reveals that's not how God gave. We, we must not forget something as we learn in Genesis that, that God is triune. He is holy. He is by nature communal. He is in relationship. He has everything He would ever need. He is perfect in every way. In other words... Creation didn't complete God, right? He wasn't some Jerry Maguire God like, you complete me, Adam and Eve, finally. That's not the way it worked. He was complete apart from anything ever being created. He had no deficiency, no lack. So, not needing anything informs us why He creates. He doesn't create out of fear. He doesn't create out of guilt. He doesn't create out of obligation or an effort to obtain something he doesn't already have. Apart from any external motivation, God chooses to give. He chooses to create. He chooses to love an undeserving, ungrateful, and ungodly people in a way that is incredibly intentional. Deeply proportional. I'll explain what that means. Sacrificial and cheerful. See, those are the words, intentional, proportional, sacrificial, and cheerful that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 8 to describe how we're to give. You go, well, why would he use those words? Think about how God gave. 
Ephesians 1 tells us God planned to give. It wasn't on a whim. It was before the world was even created. He was very intentional in planning to give and to love. More than that, he gives proportionally, right? God gives in the amount that he can give. He doesn't just write a little check. He doesn't just create He gives his son. His infinite, eternal son. Something only he could give. More than that, he gives sacrificially. He doesn't just put his son in there, right? He, gives, he sends his son to die on a cross. And he does so cheerfully. He does so with joy. Hebrews says that for the joy set before him, Jesus went to the cross, enduring the pain, enduring the death because of the joy he saw, which was ultimately restored relationship with his people. That's how God gave. His giving, if nothing else, proclaims that He is by nature loving. And the Bible says that, right? The Bible says in 1 John 4.16, God is love. And you go, what does that even mean? God is love. That seems strange to say, but meaningful. Well, unlike the love of men, like when we talk about the love of men, people say, you love me, I love you, we love the love of God is infinitely more than just sentimental feelings or active effect, affection or even faithful commitment. When we talk about theologically, God's love means that He eternally gives of Himself to others. He is eternally other-oriented. This definition of love is basically one, I think Grudem describes it as self-giving for the benefit of others. Because remember, it's not benefiting him. He's perfect. He's benefiting in the sense that maybe it's bringing him joy, but it's not a joy that he didn't have already. It's benefiting us. That's the love of Jesus. And when we experience the love of God, the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, the blessing of God in Christ, everything changes about our giving. The love of Jesus, I believe, transforms why we give and what we give, even to whom we give, because it's driven by a love of, for, and with Jesus. And I'll break it down for you in ways that are pretty crazy. I'm going to give you the simple ways about Love motivating our giving. And I'm not even defining giving. And I'm not defining who you should give to, but let's just spend time on seeing how Christ gave to us. First and foremost, our giving is motivated, as I said, by the love of Jesus. You get this out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, colon. So here comes the cross. Here comes the Gospel, plainly stated, that one has died for all, Jesus, therefore all have died. And He died for all, but those who live, those who trust that Jesus died in your place for your sins, that He rose from the dead to give you new life, a life that you couldn't have lived if you tried but were supposed to, a death you deserve for not doing it, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Our giving is supposed to be motivated by the love of Jesus. That's where it starts. 
And when we put our faith, our trust in the Gospel of Jesus Christ, then the love of Christ begins to control us. There is a difference between believing and following Jesus. There is a difference between believing and following Jesus. Anyone can respect or admire Jesus. Even demons do. Following Jesus means that His love becomes the governing force in your life. It holds you. When you feel like you're going to fall, it restrains you. It compels you. It holds your life together. Our desire to give is generated by Jesus in us. And what that means is this, is difficult as it might be to hear, if the desire to give of yourself to others, whether that be your time or your treasure or your talent, if that desire to give is not in there, then that's because the love of self controls you. That's what's controlling you. Jesus died, and when you believe that sinless Jesus died the death that you deserve, that self-centered, self-absorbed, self-reliant, self-glorifying person that was, dies with him. And through faith you rise from the dead, a new person, devoted to no longer living for yourself, but for Jesus who loves you. We give because we are compelled to give, having trusted in the Gospel. Our giving is first and foremost motivated by the love of Jesus. But more than that, second, it's motivated by a love for Jesus. Love this verse. Paul, the apostle writing from prison, says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ talking about his um, glorious job as a Pharisee prior to this with power and respect and wealth, and now he's in prison and eventually he's going to be beheaded because he loves Jesus now. He says, anything I had gained, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, garbage, junk in order that I may gain Christ. See, once we accept Jesus' love, and that's what we're talking about, once you receive it, once you believe that Jesus loves you that much, we see the world entirely differently. You remember that old hymn, I think it's called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. I don't know, I'm not musical. But there's words in it that says, as we turn our eyes upon Jesus, as we look full in His wonderful face, what happens? The things of this earth grow strangely dim. They grow strangely dim. Unimportant. Before Christ, we didn't give because we were afraid of losing everything. Those things were valuable. Those things about security and identity and hope but our hearts are changed, and now we do all things out of love for Jesus. It's, it's so refreshing to see new believers. I pray that we continually have 
new believers. And January 6th, we're going to have a baptism service and, and encourage many people who, who haven't been baptized or those who have come to Christ recently to be baptized. And it's a joy to see their joy. It's almost like uh, older couples seeing younger couples who just got married. I, it rekindles like, oh, I remember when we were like that. I remember when we, we held hands. I remember when I would sit next to you and just if your finger touched my leg, it was like, oh, all my senses were down in that one spot. And I just knew. It was like awesome, right? It's, it's that romance. Like, I remember when, when Kayla and I were first dating, like, I didn't have to think about being romantic. I just wanted to. I was driven by it. I suffered the loss of many things for that romance. Loss of money. Loss of sleep. Loss of gas for all kinds of driving. Loss of friendships because, you know what? Guys before gals, nope, sorry. She is my girl. It was all rubbish, though. I didn't care. I'll spend it. And it was like, why are you spending that? I, just... I gave up anything because everything paled in comparison to having this girl. Do you remember when you felt like that about Jesus? That's what we need to remember, and that's what new believers remind us of. In that moment where you realize that all this is just so unimportant because you have this, and that inheritance waiting for you, oh, man, what? I'll give it away, whatever, I don't care. Our giving is to be motivated by love for Jesus like that. Third of four, giving is also to be motivated by a love like Jesus. I love John 13, but careful reading it, it's very convicting. John 13 is the passage where prior to Jesus' death on the night of the Last Supper, he invites his disciples in, including Judas, who would betray him, and Peter, who would deny him, call curses of God down upon him if I know him. I mean, Peter pretty much did what Judas did. And yet Jesus washes their feet. And no one but Jesus, the guest of honor, got up to do this. And when he did and started washing Peter's feet, he's like, what are you doing? I should be doing this. Yeah, but you didn't, Pete. And this must be done, he says. He's like, wash my whole body! And this is what Jesus says. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, colon. Now when you get a colon, it's like, I'm going to explain to you what I just said. Just as I have loved you. The infinite, eternal Son of God gets down on His hands and knees and washes the feet of His creation. He will soon go to a cross made from a tree that He created, be whipped with a scourge of cords made from animals he created, be spit upon and yelled at with tongues he created. You want to talk about giving. And it all starts with a baby on Christmas, right? 
Little we know what's going to happen 33 years later. To just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, people will know that you're my disciples. If you have love for one another. Our giving is to be motivated by a love for the people of Jesus like Jesus. Jesus gave this command, as I said, on the night he was betrayed and he humbled himself in the most amazing way in order to show us what love actually looked like. Now clearly we would see even a greater love when he goes to the cross. But right here he instructs his disciples to love one another the same way. Saying that the distinguishing characteristic of you guys is not going to be the amazing gatherings and awesome marketing you do. It's not going to be the awesome outreach programs you have or the BBS things during the... That's not going to be what shows people that, man, they're my disciples. It's how you love one another. We don't give our time and our money or stuff because it's sinful to have or sinful to enjoy what God has given to us. That's not what I'm saying. I don't think Jesus is some eternal masochist who doesn't want us to enjoy the good gifts that He's given us. We give because as disciples we are overwhelmed with the love God has for us and therefore overwhelmed with a love and affection for others. Our desire to enjoy and our desire to have is trumped by our desire to bless. So much so that we plan for it. How many of us really plan for giving? And I'm talking about our kids at Christmas. Where we set aside money trusting that God will give us opportunity to give. I don't know how many of us do that. I know we haven't done that very often or very regularly. But we're compelled by Desire to give. Desire to love because we have been loved so much we will plan for it. We give not because we want to go without, but because we don't want others to go without. That's the difference. And what does Philippians 2 say? Having been given the mind of Christ, we consider others more important than ourselves. Now, during the season of spending, it's difficult to see that for all of us. We consider others more important, more deserving, more in need than ourselves. That's the kind of way Jesus gave, and that's how we're called to give, like him. And lastly, our giving is to be motivated by a love with Jesus. And this one's cool. Writing about those who have gone after this world, Paul writes this, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship, Christians writing from prison, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to even subject all things to Himself. For those who have experienced um, the pain of being told 
you have a terminal illness. Or the pain of losing someone we would deem too soon. In that moment, for me, the only time I've probably really experienced it was the moment I couldn't find our daughter at the water slides for about 45 minutes. In that moment, you realize what's important. And then we forget. But for a moment, I believe we get a glimpse. And if we could live in that moment of recognizing the unimportance of some of the things we make so important, our giving would change. See, our giving is supposed to be motivated by this idea of, I'm going to love someday being with Jesus. And I, I don't know if this is like you, like when I go on vacation, it's really fun. Like, I don't necessarily have a lot of money, but on vacation, you feel like you do. So it's like, yeah, ice cream, whatever. You're just like spending money like it's going out of style. Then when you get home, you're like, what did we do? But in the moment, you're just like, hey, yeah, this is awesome. Like the idea of there's a, a house reserved for me, an inheritance waiting for me. I'm going to be with Jesus. And we kind of go, well, yeah, let's just, you know, let's steward the stuff, get rid of it. Like, it would just not be that important. We keep that eternal perspective that we are sojourners here. Like when, when we really grasp the idea that God is real and that God really created a good world and we really screwed it up, but He really entered it to someday bring us back together with Him. Like that's the point of all things. You realize really quickly that, well, this is not the point of all things. Our view of the world changed and our living in this world changes. I think John Piper said it best, so I just copied him because it's really good. Hope it comes up. Good. This is what he said. If. So here's a big if. So this will describe, for those who put their trust in Jesus, this should describe you. Because it's just quoting Scripture. This is the mentality that we are called to live with. And I'm not saying it's easy to. I'm saying this is the kind of thing we have to remind ourselves over and over again. This is, in many ways, why we come and gather as a people to be reminded of God's truth so that we don't get lost in the noise of the world's truth. It says, if we are refugees and exiles on the earth, and if our citizenship is in heaven, and if nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, and if His steadfast love is better than life, and if all hardship is working for us in eternal weight of glory. Translated, if the Bible is true, then, we will give to the winds our fears and seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. We will count everything as rubbish in comparison with Christ. We will joyfully accept the plundering of our property for the sake of unpopular acts of mercy. We will choose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And we will count the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth and the treasures of That's good. If we live with such a perspective, an eternal one, we will give with the same eternal perspective. It will be motivated by the truth and the hope of Jesus returning and us being with Him. 
as we close, 1 John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. You could probably restate it to say, We give because He first gave to us. The question isn't, what is your treasure? The question really is, who? Your heart's going to follow your treasure, and your energy, and your talents, and your wallet's going to follow your heart. And many are going to ask, well, what is generous giving, really? And again, I would just say, look at Jesus. Do we even fathom how poor he became? He was not poor because he was a carpenter. Or because he lived as a Galilean peasant most of his life. He was poor because he was the infinite, eternal Son of God becoming man. Philippians 2, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He emptied himself of it all. And in giving grace and mercy and love and forgiveness generously, he reveals the true nature of generous giving. Generous giving is sacrificial giving where we deny ourselves, we ignore the world's view of success, we find security in God, and we give so much it hurts that others might be blessed. And I'm not just talking about our children. We give at a response to how much God has loved us and given us, and we need to teach our children by living that out in front of them. While I had nothing to give to Jesus, He gave me everything. He gave, and so we give. And to be real practical, if the giving of your time or your talent or your treasure does not cause you to change your lifestyle, it's not generous like Jesus. There's a simple test for it. Most of us don't give in ways that actually make us uncomfortable or disrupt our plans or our calendars. We arrange our giving around our plans and our calendars when God arranged everything around us. Know that even if we were not meeting budget or needed to raise money for some ministry, the prayers of the elders would not be that you just give more and spend less on yourself. That's not what I'm trying to say. Quite simply, our prayer would be that you would know the love of Jesus Christ. That's it. Because we believe that only then will your giving be driven by the love of Jesus and a love for Jesus and a love like Jesus because you know you're going to be with him. And so I'll close with the prayer that Paul prays in Colossians, which is the prayer we should all pray. So no, I don't sit on my knees and go, I wish my people would just give. We sit on our knees 
and pray, I wish our people would know the love of Jesus. Because in the love of Jesus would go out of this place and you would make the love of Jesus known by how you give and how you love those around you. If you bow with me, I'm just going to pray Paul's prayer in closing. For this reason, Lord, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant our people, Restoration Road Church, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that being rooted and grounded in love, we may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. If you'd stand, know that this table right here is for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ.